Uh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. Uh, we know that you created everything in this world. And we thank you that you not only created everything in this world, but through Jesus, you've also made us new creations. Uh, we know that we are fallen, we are sinful, and yet through your Son, you rescued us. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as new creation people gathered here today, uh, please would you help us to listen to your voice in your word, and would your spirit be changing us as we listen to your word and, and as we live it out. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, what are you going to do with your life? That's the perennial question, isn't it? It's asked by your parents, your grandparents, your teachers, your friends, your colleagues, and yes, by you yourself. Especially when you just started life in university or life in the working world. What are you going to do with your life? Or what have you done with your life? In an article I read recently, the clinical psychologist who was being interviewed explained that the 20s are the most important decade of your life. Our 20s are the defining decade of adulthood, she says. 80% of life's most defining moments take place by about age 35. Two-thirds of lifetime wage growth happens during the first 10 years of your career. More than half of Americans, she's American, are married or are dating or are living with your future partner by age 30. Personality can change more during your 20s than at any other decade in life. Female fertility peaks at 28, and the brain caps off its final major growth spurt. And later on in this article, she advises all 20-somethings to recognize that what you do or don't do during your 20s will have an enormous impact across years and even generations. Uh, to quote her again, you're deciding your life right now. So if you're no longer in your 20s, I I'm sorry, the ship has failed. And if you're still in your 20s, well, no pressure. But while I think that this psychologist is clearly overstating her case, uh, we all recognize that there are certain advantages to being youthful. And uh, I'll leave you to define what age that might be. But being youthful is it's a time of energy, isn't it? Of vigor, of get up and go. There's, there's a willingness to try new things, and there's less difficulty in changing directions. After all, it's easier to switch from being a banker to a pharmacist if you've been a banker for only two years rather than 20. There are less commitments, less responsibilities than they are later in life, when you might have a mortgage to worry about, or perhaps a spouse and children or a more senior role in your company. It's a much more ideal time to decide what you're going to do with your life. When you're older, there's so much less to look forward to, and so much more to look back on. But when you're young, your whole future is before you. Now, we don't know how old the preacher was when he wrote Ecclesiastes, but it's safe to say that he was certainly not a young man. All throughout Ecclesiastes, death is a looming reality for him in a way, I think, 
that would be very hard for a young man to fathom. There's a sense that he's had a very wide experience of life. He's tasted pleasure. He's tasted philosophy. He's tasted wealth and success. But for all that, he found it all vanity. It's the kind of realization that will only strike someone who's been there, done that. For 12 chapters, he's been sharing his observations of the world, gleaned from his experience. And yet his very last words in chapter 12 verse 8 are the very same that opened the book in 1 verse 2, which Kenneth read for us earlier. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But that's not to say that he's been merely repeating himself all this while. In fact, I think it's safe to say that from chapter 8 onwards, he begins to give more positive advice about living in this world under the sun. In chapter 8, he tells us how to be wise when confronted with power structures. In chapter 9, he encourages us to live life to the full in the face of death. In chapter 10, he quotes a whole selection of proverbs to show us that the way of wisdom is better and the way of folly worse. And last week, you might remember in chapter 11, verse 1 to 6, he tells us how to invest in an uncertain world. And this week, in today's passage, the preacher primarily addresses the young man or woman. And in broad strokes, he's going to tell them what to do with their lives. And so the first thing he says is rejoice in your life. Rejoice in your life. Verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. The preacher is saying, having life itself is a good thing. The picture is that of a delivery room. After all those hours of labor, out comes the newborn. Her first cry will kickstart her lungs. The doctor will make sure that her nostrils are open. And her eyes, though unable to see much, will at least be able to detect light as she opens them. And so new life begins. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun because new life is here. She's born, there's been no complications, and for the moment, that's all that matters. Savor the miracle, the sweetness of new life. Rejoice. Now, no one will be able to predict how long she will live. Not the parents who will have a major influence on her life, but no say in determining how many days she'll live. Not the doctor, even with all the advances of medical technology. And so the preacher's advice is this, in verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. You have no control over the quantity of your days. But you do have a say in the way you perceive the quality of your days. So enjoy them. Take time to delight in God's good blessings to you. 
Maybe it's friends and family. Maybe it's good health. Maybe it's even so-called trivial things like good coffee, a good day out, a good night's sleep. There's sports, nature, the arts. Rejoice in these aspects of life. The boxer Muhammad Ali once said, Do not count the days, but make the days count. The preacher would have approved. There's no command to Christians in the Bible that they are to be all gloomy and to wear serious faces all the time. In fact, Paul says the opposite. In Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And even as we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, he says in Colossians, we are to be overflowing with thankfulness. Rejoice in your days on earth. Now, at first glance, this seems a bit like an unrealistic, oh, don't worry, be happy kind of philosophy. One that's removed from real life. But of course, the preacher knows all about real life. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, you know that for sure. He hasn't forgotten. And so he says, verse 8 again, But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. The days of darkness here, I take it, is referring to the coming of old age and the awareness that death is just round the corner. There's a parallel expression in 12 verse 1 when the preacher refers to the coming of evil days. And we'll get to that later on. But the preacher is already aware here that one day the light will dim. It will taste sour. See, he isn't caught by surprise when the same Muhammad Ali, who was such a fearsome fighter, the greatest according to many, would be reduced by Parkinson's disease to someone who cannot carry the Olympic flag for even more than a few seconds. The days of darkness will be many. Expect it. But that doesn't stop the preacher from saying, anyway, rejoice in your life. One commentator suggests that the preacher seems to argue that an acute sense of life's gravity should increase the degree to which we cherish life while we have it. Or as the mystery writer Agatha Christie once put it, she said this, I like living, I'm sure we all do. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, wracked with sorrow. But through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a great thing. Okay, preacher, you might say, but how am I specifically to rejoice? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us. Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So the preacher is saying, make the most of your time before you grow old. Don't, don't fall into the trap of saying, if only, if, if only I hadn't neglected my studies or my family, if, if only I had pursued that opportunity. If only I had been more serious about God. Don't regret, says the preacher. Enjoy life while you are still young. Indeed, the preacher boldly tells us to follow our hearts. If something looks good and right, 
pursue it. Perhaps recalling the first few verses of chapter 11 from last week, uh, he says, don't be overcautious. Go for it. In a famous scene from the movie Dead Poet Society, not sure how many of you know it, but Robin Williams uh, plays a teacher and he takes his students uh, to go and see uh, old photos of past students. As they look at the photos, Robin Williams solemnly whispers to his students. He says this, They're not that different from you, are they? But they're simply fertilizer for flowers now. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Can you hear it? Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Follow your heart. Seize the day, the preacher says. That's the way, young man or woman, that you should go. Now, hang on, hang on, hang on, you say. That doesn't sound very Christian. In fact, it sounds positively worldly. And that may very well be, if that's all the preacher said. But have a look again at the immediate context. End of verse 9. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It's not a case of everything goes, the preacher says. Don't, don't forget, you ultimately have to answer to God for every choice you make and every action you take. He's got a perfect memory. He sees everything that you do. And he's sitting on his judgment throne. So walk boldly, but don't forget your judge. And I think verse 9 has something to challenge two particular groups amongst us today. Now, some of us like to play it safe. Uh, in fact, we're actually too cautious. We, we over-calculate everything. We constantly ask questions like, oh, but is this really God's will for me? Uh, 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 was God speaking through that event? We're always examining our hearts and thinking, oh, did, did I have the right motivations or was I just being too selfish? Or we wonder, oh, did, did I surrender enough of myself to God? And then we feel pressured and guilty because we're quite sure the answer is no. And we end up being paralyzed, unable to make decisions on absolutely anything because we're quite sure that we always end up making the wrong choice. If that's you, then the preacher reminds us, verse 9, to simply walk in the ways of your hearts and the sight of your eyes. You see, as Christians, you have freedom in Christ. You're free to decide whether to pursue further study or not. You're free to decide whether to pursue that relationship or not. You're free to decide whether to pursue that ministry or not. As the theologian Augustine is supposed to have said, love God and do what you like. Yes, you must love God and obey his commands. You must have his priorities and his concerns. You must not go against his word or your conscience. But after that, you have immense freedom. So don't shrink back and end up overly introspective and ironically self-absorbed. Go forth 
and rejoice in your life. But there's a second group of us. And some of us have not examined our lives enough. We're too carefree. We feel that everything is fine when it actually isn't. Like someone with high blood pressure and no idea. We're too relaxed about things in our lives that might be sinful or at the very least foolish. And if that's you, the preacher reminds us again, verse 9, to know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. See, we need to have genuine self-knowledge and self-acknowledgement that we might be walking in the sinful ways of our hearts. And we need to know the wrath of God is coming and repent. We need to run back to Jesus and confess him as Savior and Lord. You do not have absolute freedom. You belong to Christ. So go forth and live a life as such. The preacher now ends his section on rejoicing with verse 10. And he says this, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, vexation has come at least twice earlier in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, verse 18, it comes in the context of wisdom bringing only vexation. And in chapter 2, verse 23, it comes in the context of work itself being vexation. So don't stress too much over pursuing wisdom or work or anything else that will spoil your enjoyment of life, the preacher says. After all, it's vanity. And then he goes on to tell us to put away pain in our bodies. And that sounds a bit like a, a difficult expression, a bit weird. You know, is he simply telling us that positive thinking is able to defeat our various ailments? Um, having been sick this past two weeks, I wish that was so. But perhaps he is making the same observation as Proverbs 17.22, which tells us, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So vexation and physical pain are often linked. How, how we feel inside and our outer bodies, they're often linked. And so perhaps removing one will entail putting away the other. And the preacher from there now moves on to his second exhortation. And he says this, Remove, Remember your creator before it's too late. Remember your creator before it's too late. And that's the rest of our passage for today. Now, time flies, doesn't it? You know, it seems like yesterday you were in school and then suddenly you've been working for five years and then before you know it, your 10-year college reunion is around the corner and then, guess what? Retirement is here. And then you're absolutely certain that the music on the radio and the shows on the television were much better when you were a teenager than now. You know, no, no one seems to know what you're talking about when you talk about Atari or DOS. Or, or they just look at you with pity. <laughs> and, then, and then they tell you that you just mentioned it five minutes ago. But, but, but you've forgotten. Time flies. The clock ticks. 
And the preacher says, in a poetic way, in verse 1 of chapter 12, the evil days come and the years draw near. There's no sentimentality here. No proverbs about how with age comes wisdom. It's only a time when there is little pleasure. And so the preacher's tone is urgent. He says, remember your creator. Not just remember God, but remember your creator. To call God creator is to remind ourselves that he gives us everything that we have. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He's the one who made us in his image, who breathed life into us, and who put us here to rule his creation. He's the one, the preacher said earlier, who gives us wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's 2.26. Or 5.19, he says this, he's given us wealth and possessions and enables us to enjoy them. Remember your creator. And that doesn't mean just giving five seconds of your day to say, uh, yup, 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 God's the creator, and then you live life as if nothing has changed. It's to allow the knowledge that God is creator to change how you see the world. Change how you treat the next person. Change how you use your time. If you remembered that your deadline for something was tomorrow, and you haven't done anything about it, that would spur you, in, spur you into action straight away, wouldn't it? And so remembering your Creator also necessarily costs you to action. Lose your independence. Depend on the one who made you. And three times in chapter 12, verse 1 to 8, he uses the word before. It's there in verses 1, 2, and 6. Now, clearly we should remember our Creator at all times. But it is especially during our youth that we must remember. Look at verse 2, for instance. Remember your Creator, verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. The preacher, utilizing apocalyptic language, is deliberately evoking a very sad picture. It's a picture of judgment, of creation gone wrong, of creation not working the way it's supposed to. Just like how our created bodies age and decay and no longer work the way it's supposed to. It's a sign that our eventual passing away is not far off, of the painful existence of death in this world because of the fall. Uh, some of us know this particularly this week. The dawn of life spoken of earlier is gone. Uh, you, you could try to disguise its effects. You know, you buy anti-aging creams, you travel the world, you exercise more. And the skies might be clear for a while. But it's not long before the clouds return. It's a sad picture. So remember your Creator before such a time comes. And the preacher is only getting started. You know, for the rest of our passage, he paints an incredibly gloomy picture of old age and death. Let me just read to you verses 3 all the way to 7. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, 
and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dim. And the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bow is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, some people have read these verses allegorically. So the body is seen in terms of the house. Now they say, the keepers are the hands that tremble, the strong man are his legs, unable to bear the weight of his body anymore, the grinders are his teeth, of which they are few, uh, so you can't chew much, those who look through the windows are his failing eyes, the doors on the street represent his ears, that no longer hear so well, the daughters of songs are his voice, which is now weak, and so on and so forth. I'm not completely convinced, although some of it works quite well, uh, that the grinders on one level refers to our teeth seems plausible enough, whereas others, such as the doors being your ears, well, it doesn't seem so likely. What I would say is that it's best to look at the picture here in its entirety and not try to press all the details too much to say that this definitely equals that. Although clearly there is a richness of metaphor and figurative language here. What is more important here, I think, is the mood, the feel, the outlook that the preacher wants to convey. And the picture being painted here is that of a ghost town. So there is terror, verse 3, as the keepers of this house, its servants, they tremble at what is to come. Verse 5 continues this thought. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. That is, the, the citizens of this ghost town, they have no sense of security. Every danger, big or small, is magnified. There is lethargy, back to verse 3, where a place once full of activity no longer has any strong men left. They are all bent. The workers of the mill, its grinders, they've closed their doors. There's no more economic activity. They can only work, look through the windows with despair and nostalgia at what it used to be. There is a lifelessness and eerie silence, verse 4. As even in your sleeplessness, only the sound of birds can be heard. In fact, if you go about on the streets, verse 5, all you can see are mourners walking back and forth. Terror, lethargy, despair, nostalgia, lifelessness, silence. That's what it's like, the preacher says, when you're old and aware that death is around the corner. And in verse 5, the preacher starts to move away from the imagery of the ghost town to that of nature. 
So he says, the almond blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Now here the metaphors are more straightforward. So almond tree blossoms burst out as reddish pink flowers, I learned, turning snowy white before they fall. So you can see a picture there. And so the picture here is of old age. No matter what society you're from, it's often marked by that distinctive white hair, if, if there is any hair left. <laughs> the, the, the grasshopper dragging itself along is the slow, stiff walk of an old person, no longer as spry as he used to be. The phrase desire fails is literally the keeper berry shrivels up, which is not reflected in our English translations. Now the keeper berry is an aphrosodiac, so Viagra in other words. And so the preacher is saying, your libido is not what it used to be. That's why desire fails. So and don't bother with you know Viagra or Tonkat Ali. It's not going to help. And all this is leading to one destination, verse 6 and 7. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. There are four different pictures, all pointing to the same stark reality, brokenness and death. You see, the preacher knows. He knows that when you're young, you don't think about death. You, you, you can't imagine it coming. But the preacher is saying, one day, one day, you get to the age that your grandfather and grandmother used to be, and you think, oh, I would never reach that age. But it'll come. And faster than you think. So remember your creator before it's too late. And that's the call to God's people all throughout the ages. When God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, he made sure that they celebrated the Passover to remember God's rescue. As Moses stands before the Israelites, just before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, he calls on them to remember how God led them through the wilderness. And when Joshua, his successor, readies the people to enter the promised land, he calls on them to remember God's promise, saying this, it's on the screen, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And the night before he died, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He breaks the bread and he says, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He calls on us today, his people, to remember him, the good shepherd who allowed his body to be broken at only 33 years old on the cross, that we might have life to the full. In the context of suffering and being faithful to the gospel, Paul calls on us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He's saying he's now in charge of the world. He's risen. So remember when you're tempted to chase after youthful passions. Remember when you can't seem to maintain self-control. 
Remember when all others seem to be losing their heads. But Jesus doesn't just call on us to look back. He calls on us to look forward as well. And that's different from the preacher. The preacher doesn't have a developed theology of the afterlife. See, he knows in verse 5 that man is going to his eternal home. And in verse 7, he knows that the spirit returns to God who gave it. But that's all he can see. But for us who know Jesus and love him, well, we see much clearer now. Our, our outer bodies are wasting away, yes, day by day. And every day is a day closer to death. But our inner selves are being renewed day by day. And every day is a day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. And that's encouragement for all of us, but especially those of us who are old already. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal wake of glory beyond all comparison. Yes, we groan. But he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in our New Testament reading today, that we are always of good courage, for we have God's sure promises of resurrection. And while we still wait for our resurrection bodies, our aim is to please him. We can delight ourselves in him, knowing that the death of Jesus has made us new creations. So what are you going to do with your life? Remember your creator, enjoy your life, and live like the new creation people we are, while we wait for our eyes to one day see Jesus, the Son. Let's pray. Father God, you know that while we live, on this earth, uh, we know that creation groans, but we know that it groans in anticipation of the renewal that is to come. And our bodies groan too. And yet we know that in Christ we have such an amazing hope that even though on the outside it looks like our bodies are wasting away, and yet in Christ we are being renewed day after day. So until then, Lord, please help us to live our lives here on earth to glorify you. Help us to enjoy every good gift that you give to us. And help us never to forget you, our creator. And help us not to forget that you are our judge. And so fear you and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray.